Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft, Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, pack your bags, everyone, because today on Script Apart, we're making an emotional return to soul. That's right, my name's Al Horner, and on this week's installment of this podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows, we're joined by the talented Davy Shu, writer-director of one of 2023's most alluring slow-burn dramas, a cinematic odyssey into identity and displacement that really captivated me. The film follows the sensational Park Ji-min as Freddie, a young woman wandering through the home country of her biological parents in search of answers and in search of herself. Inspired by the real-life experiences of artist Laura Badeuf, with whom Davy co-wrote the screenplay, it's a delicate, raw character study that both moved me immeasurably and made me want to go to Seoul right this very second. South Korean tourist board, if you're listening, hit me up. There really is so much beautiful nuance to this story, which was informed by Davy's own dual cultural heritages as a Franco-Cambodian filmmaker. You know how in real life, we human beings tend to be kind of messy and contradictory? Well, Return to Soul basks in that complexity, forging characters out of it who are flawed, who let themselves down, who push people away when they ought to let them in. And yet you can't help but fall for these characters. Around Freddy are a supporting cast of people who are all similarly entangled in their own messy wants, desires, hopes and regrets. In the spoiler-filled conversation that you're about to hear, Davy shares with me how he found the realness in each of those characters. He explains what he wanted the film to express about the necessity of saying farewell, of being able to let go. We talk about the clever ways the film emphasizes the cultural disparities between Freddie and the parents who once abandoned her, and we break down the meaning of the film's enigmatic ending, a conclusion that's really stuck with me, that Davy explains was actually informed on a subconscious level by the Michael Mann movie Heat, one of my all-time favorite movies. Davy was a tremendous guest, a huge thank you to him for being such a delight to speak with. A huge thank you also to our Patreon supporters, because let's be real, where would this show be without you guys? If you're not yet a member of that community, but you like what we do on Script Apart and would like to see us continue to grow, head to patreon.com forward slash script apart, where for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee or glass of Freddy's favorite drink, soju, as I suppose it would be in Return to Soul, you can get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, and a weekly bonus video segment titled Postscript that we recently launched. Script Apart is a two-person operation, just me and my producer Cam, so any support you can throw our way is really appreciated. Okay, that's all the admin out of the way. Let's dive straight into this spoiler-filled conversation, which I had a ton of fun recording. 
Thanks again so much for tuning in. This is the brilliant Davy Shu discussing the first draft secrets of Return to Soul. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Davy, welcome to Script Apart. Such a pleasure to have you with us. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you. Huge congratulations on Return to Soul, Davy. I absolutely loved this movie. It's a film about transnational identity and the notion of home as like a lighthouse for who we are, the darkness that can sometimes descend when it's unclear what or, or where home exactly is. You've also described it as addressing a national wound. It'd be great to begin by hearing a bit about what you meant by that phrase, Davy, and at what point during the development of Return to Soul, you realised that this could be a story specific, yes, to one country's national wound, as you put it, while also having this amazing universality to it. You, you really don't need to know the history of uh, Korea's adopted children to to connect with it. Um, well, I talking about the national wound thing, I, I was not conscious of that when I was like starting to work on the film. It's only doing research, talking to Korean people about that project of film that was based on a personal adventure of mine being in Korea and accompanying a very close friend of mine when she was meeting her biological father. That that was the origin of the story. And so when I talked to Korean people, I realized something I didn't know, which was that specific uh, story of Korean adoption or adoption, international adoption in Korea was a very famous one. That was kind of a very, um, yeah, like national tragedy that people were very aware of, that was very documented in like um, TV reports in, in, in Korea, but also even like real TV shows that they made about that and, and, and many stories. And so I find myself a bit um, pressurized as well that I'm not Korean, it's not my story. I used to make film in Cambodia already about the, the past of Cambodia, but I felt maybe more untitled back then because I have Cambodian roots and I was talking about Cambodian senior, which my grandfather, who I never met, used to be a producer in Cambodia. So somehow there was a link, but he was really a foreign director making a film about something that is some kind of national topic. So so when I say address um, um, national wound, it was about also being conscious of, okay, I'm putting my step into something that I need to be aware of what I'm talking. So it come, it came, I think, with making research reading about it, not feeling dumb about being able to answer that question. I don't think I turned into an expert on the question of international adoption in Korea, and I never intended to be because at the end I'm making a fiction film, but at least I need to have the the, the basic background of knowledge of where the story comes from so that I can play in the script, I think, to try to put signs of that background story without also overcoming the, the film, because it's not a film about, it's not a film dossier about Korean adoption, it's really a portrait of a woman that have experienced that trauma of adoption when she was one, and after when she grew up in France, but at least I could give a little signs of um, where it comes from. I know that Laura Badouf, who you co-wrote the film with, she grew up in France and went on a voyage into her heritage and her identity, similar to kind of Freddie's journey in the film. How do you sum up the split between fact and fiction in Return to Soul, Davy? Like, where does law end and where does Freddie begin in terms of uh, the character's personality and her, and her quite captivating refusal to be pinned down? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, well, I need to go back also to the process of like the evolution of the of the script and the story. For me, the basis of the film was obviously the story of law. It means that after she agreed on the idea of making a film on her life. She, weeks later, sent me a document with a list of anecdotes and photos and dates of diff the, evil the different trips that she had in South Korea and everything like that. So I immersed myself into that story because I didn't know that story out of only the scene that I witnessed like back in 2011 with her and her father. So I immersed myself into that. I checked a bit to see what kind of story I wanted to tell because of course from that material you can, you can take like thousands of different directions. And, and once I shaped that, I think it took me three years to write the script. And through those, these three years, I read a lot of different documentation. I met a lot of Korean adoptees, either in Paris or mostly in Seoul, actually. And of course, all the time I will like spend evening with them, asking them questions about their own experience, taking notes. And it became a, a mashup of loss experience and other people experience 
my own experience as well, um, more in Korea, I will say, of going there for the first time, the guest house experience that every tourist and backpackers have done. So I could really like, yeah, and, and it became a dialogue between that. I have to say as well that uh, I put a lot of personal elements as, as well in the film. Um, maybe it was uh, the progressive consciousness of how that movie and that story was personal as opposed as at the beginning when I jumped into the idea of making that film, maybe I was a bit unconscious and a bit naive into not seeing the obvious, which is that there is a lot of things also that talks to me personally, which is not the adoption thing because I'm not adoptee and not the Korean thing because I'm not Korean, but about being split between two identities or more precisely supposedly coming from somewhere when you know nothing about and the expense of at one point feeling a calling to go there and going there and not understanding what it is because you don't know it and then you need to fill that gap and you need to f to deal with that feeling of confusion of of and gaps between your identity and the and the environment so at the end i think i played to also take ownership of the character also as well to put some personal things inside uh, i i like to be precise because we're talking about it so it's like the first scene in the film when Freddy is like like uh, standing up from the table and inviting all. It, it's something I, I I used to do one day in Pusan Film Festival in 2014, and it was it was a great night. It was a very fun night, <laughs> and so to introduce the character and the unpredictability of the character, the way that you can't really predict what she's gonna do, and 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 her kind of force and and desire for control in that specific moment, I just put um, a real thing that happened to me when when she wake up in the streets and. Um, around the ending of the film. That's something that happened to me a few years ago. It was the very first time, the last one, but I was kind of shocking to experience like walking up in the street in the morning without remembering what's happened before. So that's also something I took for my experience. So that small example of at the end, it was, it was, but I think it was a natural organic process of putting yourself in so that suddenly you, there is a blur definition of what, what is, what is Freddie? Is she my friend? Is she me? Is she also the actress who bring a lot and we can talk about it, how much she also reshaped something of the, of the character. So it was all this kind of heterogeneity. There's this wonderful phrase, Davey, that you've used to describe her. Whenever someone tries to put Freddie in a box, she destroys the box. And I love that phrase because I think it speaks to how complex she is as a character and how combative she can get whenever someone tries to like define her. I guess the biggest question to kind of kick things off with as we really start to delve into the script is whether or not you saw a correlation between how, how wild and defiant she is and the circumstances of her upbringing. Like, is the Freddy that we meet at the beginning of this film who has this air of kind of reckless abandon to her, did you construct that as a consequence of her parents' literal abandonment of her as a kid? Yeah, that's a good one. I think, uh, I mean, first I build that based on my friends. That's, that's an easy answer, but that's the truth. That's like, that's the personality of Freddie match a lot, the personality of my friend Laure. And, and I know that at the beginning of wanting to make the film, it was not only about her story, but also her personality plus that story and the weird combination and consequences of following that. But having said that, of course, when I was writing the, the character, you, you tend to ask yourself, like, what do you think the origin of such behavior is? It would be lying, I think, to say that there is no link between uh, the trauma that has been hers and, and, and her behavior. But having said that, I would not like to think that everybody who has experienced that trauma of abandonment will react the same way. That's like multiple and infinite ways of reacting to that. But for sure, the combativeness of 3D, which I, which I, um, um, uh, how can I say in English, which I identify as some kind of survival instinct of her has been the, the, the way that she protect herself by trying to get back the control. It's for me, it's, it's, it's a result of someone who has not control a very original event of her life, which is having been abandoned and having been sent to France without having chosen it and grew up there with adoptive parents. And, 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 and so that kind of fear of losing control, that kind of way that she has to, when she sees that she, when she sees the pressure and she sees that she might lose control, she reacts very strongly into trying to find back this kind of control. 
even though it's by bringing chaos to the scene. I, I think, yeah, it, it might come from somewhere. The anger that is the anger of the character, the unpredictability of her way of refusing to enter into boxes and to labels and to definitions, for sure, it's, it's a reaction to that, the way that she's in reaction to everything. And was that always the case? Because, um, you know, you mentioned that it took three years to write the screenplay. Is this Freddy who we meet in the movie pretty much who you always envisioned the character being or or were there many iterations of who freddy was and what her personality encompassed no i think the personality of freddy was pretty clear since the beginning and 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 it's more about um details of no to be very precise when i start writing the film i i i start by writing treatments actually and, and i work like I think I work like one year and a half on the treatment. It is a long treatment of 25 pages. And at the end, you have nearly all the film. It's not in the form of a, of a full script. And so I like to, in my process, I like to share with friends, a lot of friends. And I have the chance to have a lot of friends. So and then I get feedback. And, 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 and it's, 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 it's a process that any filmmaker and every scriptwriter know that it can be confusing because you're going to have like as many opinions as the readers that you're going to share the script with. But if you can find, if you can keep your mind cool, it's, it's, there's something to take, I think, in that, at least for me. And so the first reaction I had were interesting because I didn't expect that. I had a lot of readers, I have to say, especially male readers, who immediately told me that they had difficulties to engage with the character. She was too empathetical. They didn't connect with her because they find her too nasty, too brutal, too selfish, too arrogant. And on by opposition, a lot of like female readers love the character and say, wow, she's so cool. It's like, okay, it, first it tells more about the male readers and the differences between the readers in terms of genre than my script. But still, I was thinking of, I might not want to make a film in which half of the audience, we cannot reject her because I don't reject her. I feel something for her. See, at the end, everybody hates her. Like, what? what's the responsibility, I will say, in that? So I was thinking, should I make compromise in her brutality, let's say, and try to kind of clean that and bring that down so that the character will feel a bit more acceptable for people, the people who rejected her? But I think very quickly, I say, no, if I, if I start doing that, I'm losing the interest of the whole thing, actually. And, and so I, I don't want to do that. So the, the, the solution I find was maybe trying to manage more moments of vulnerability. There are not a lot of them, but at least in, in, in the way of the film, if you can manage few moments in which you will not give like the psychological key of the character, that would be too easy, but at least show that there is moment of loneliness, there is moment of doubt, there is maybe moment of fragility in her. Maybe somehow the, the balance and the cycle will help the people who have difficulty with her to kind of find a moment of connection. Because I do, I do believe that, especially in this kind of film, when it's really a portrait of someone that you're gonna follow in each scenes through eight years, once you connect with her, that's a very precious moment when, and, and it depends on the audience. Some people connect with her very easily. Immediately, some people I know connect with her in the first adoption center scene. Some people will be like at the dance scene after like one hour. But when we connect with her, it's a very special link that after as a filmmaker, and I think it has to deal a lot with the writing and after with the editing, you need to keep. You need to keep that relationship and, and, and to really polish it as a very, the most precious thing between the audience and the film and the character. Well, for me personally, I, I, you know, I connected with her right from the very beginning because well, the, the film opens on this moment of intrigue. It's such a beautiful beginning to the movie that I think announces so much about Freddy. It says so much about the supporting characters. And yeah, it, it really teases the journey that they're all about to go on together. You have Tina this desk clerk at a hotel who's listening to music. And then suddenly, Freddy, a complete stranger to Tina, comes up, asks what music she's listening to, and takes Freddy's headphones to discover for herself. It's, it's kind of a revealing moment from a character perspective because it obviously kind of announces to the audience that Freddy has this boldness to her. <laughs> That's quite a bold thing to do. And, uh, and also that she has this curiosity in her that means that she doesn't always abide by typical social cues. And as we'll discover, she doesn't, certainly doesn't abide by some of the typical social cues in Seoul and in South Korea. Tina, meanwhile, seems to be kind of a little bit more insecure or a little bit more timid, perhaps. Why did you want to begin the movie this way? Can you, can you talk me through some of the decision making here? Mm -hmm. 
I like the idea of um, not being deceptive, but like you start by the guest house, which is the obvious thing of like, if you go to a trip, then you arrive, either you film someone getting out of the airport or arriving at the guest house. So it's, it's not original, let's say, but I, I like this idea that we're gonna go into the film as like some kind of uh, um, tourist, not tourist, but like a young journey of someone discovering country. And after, of course, it, it, it's a different film. But then uh, I, I like the simplicity of that kind of, just the encountering between two faces. I, I had the idea with talking about visual as well, but it would be only like close up of the two of them. And that kind of uh, confrontation confrontation of two different worlds that could look similar because it's described in the script like two Asian faces, but actually immediately you feel that there is different energies, there is a different background, and it's all the film is like that. The, one of the original title of the film was um, All the People I'll Never Be. And I, I like the title, although we, we had to abandon it for something more efficient, I will say. Um, because it says a lot, and, and, and especially in that first scene for me, it, it says it all. It's like the feeling of people when they come to, like when they're doing this so-called like journey to the roots thing, and they go for the first time in the country of origin, either they were born on it or not, like me in Cambodia where I, was not, I wasn't born. You get to find yourself, most of the time, fascinated by faces of people always asking yourself like, wow, that face looked like mine, but the experience, everything of that, the personal experience of that person is the most bigger, the strongest alterity of what, and, and, and difference and, and distance of my own experience. And how that brings both uh, attraction from you to that person to kind of understand what it is. And in some time, the experience of trying to reduce the distance, we always, I feel, uh, find yourself a bit frustration about understanding it. you will never fully understand that. So I was playing a lot, so I, I developed a lot, but that was for me, that was the seeds of all that, which is also the journey of the film, in that very simple first encountering that you might feel in the frame of this one or two minutes in the kind of little difference of energy between the two. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the desire to connect, which I can feel strongly now in the film with the, the acting of Park Jimin, the way that she looks to be like having a kind of friendly crush for, for Tena, but also her way of asking to listen to music. And then the music suddenly creates some kind of um, share connection between the two, but without words. So it's, it's all these things that I try to, to play with. Yeah. And, and there's such a particular kind of purposeful music choice in the scene too. The, the music that Tina's listening to has almost this kind of Morricone-esque quality that's, well, to me, signaled that we're about to go on this grand adventure across vast plains like we would in a, in a cowboy movie, which kind of certainly does, does happen in terms of the geographical space that the film kind of adventures through. I have to, I have to confess here that in the script and in my mind, uh, I was thinking of not putting the music out loud. It was a silent scene in which the music will be a secret share between them, but we don't hear the music. But it didn't work at all in the editing. It's like, okay, let's put the music and let's see how it works. And then everybody got so excited when we, when we find the right music. So anyway. It also seems significant that, you know, we're beginning the film with Freddie already in Korea. One recurrent truth um, about transnational identity or, or something that seems to come up a lot in people who have, have, have shared that experience. It seems to be this feeling that you believe that you don't quite fully belong to either place. Um, I have friends who describe the sensation of, of kind of being from two separate places, but feeling like they exist in a twilight space um, in terms of their identity somewhere between the two. They're not quite fully one thing. They're not quite fully another. And yeah, it, it made me wonder whether there was there was ever a version of the script or anything in a, in a story outline at any point where you were planning on showing any of Freddie's life back home in France. Like she talks a lot in the film about how I'm French, I'm French. There's an insistence upon that as as her her main identity, but you know, she's saying that in scenes where she's kind of rebelling against her dad and it's hard to know like exactly how perfect her life is back home, whether she's saying that because, you know, it's it's a way of hitting out or distancing herself from this man who she feels abandoned her. Yeah, that's that's very true, actually. What she says and what the reality is might be a bit different. Uh, no, since the beginning, I, I, I had this intuition that I wanted to make the film only in Korea. Uh, 
as not as an exercise, but as a kind of a challenge of how can you make that story with only having her in Korea and then the audience will need to fill the gaps of her life in France before the film, but also inside the film between the gaps of the ellipse. Um, I have to say, like, at, at, I mean, on the first days of me trying to like find ideas of a structure from the material of my friend, I think the original idea was even like more radical. It was like a series of lunches and dinners of free with her current family. Ever it was the dad and sometimes the aunt and sometimes the dad again and at the end the mom and, and, and just that, not nothing else. And, and, and maybe I was too influenced by Hong Song Su and I was thinking, oh yeah, it's going to be a lot of drinking and it's going to be a, a obvious Hong Song Su like a referential film. So I, I, I felt the necessity of adding more and, and not making only an adoption film, but like the life of that girl. But, but I never had the temptation to film friends to the exception of the first versions of the script for the ending. I was really hesitating about what the ending will be. So basically the film is in three parts in Korea and then there is an epilogue. And in the epilogue I was like hesitating, like what should I do? And at one point I wrote an epilogue that I kind of liked that we were, I guess several, several ending was in France, well in France actually, but at least one was her during her birthday in her family house, having this scene with her mom in her like childhood room, discussing a bit and feeling that they they still haven't totally shared about what was her experience in Korea, It'd still be her thing, but talking a bit. And then the adoptive mom was going out of the room and then Freddie felt an urge of doing something. She opened her laptop, she sent the email uh, to her Korean mom and then she received the same like error message which is a, a fact that came from the real life of my friend actually and then she's here and she doesn't know how to react and people call her because it's the time of the birthday cake and then she gets out so that was the original ending I liked it but but I felt that maybe it's too symbolic but uh, I felt that it was maybe agreeing too much in the idea for the audience that yeah she did choose and now she's going back to her French identity as uh, compares what he was saying at the beginning and even though Korea was still, and I didn't like that. I think that, no, I, I think the real character of Freddie, if, if we believe that she's right in being brave, in defying everything that she, as she does in the film, uh, I don't think that she will choose. I think that she will still find like uh, another way. So that came with the idea of not filming friends at all. Hey everyone, Al here. Just jumping in to tell you that support for this episode comes from Mubi. You guys know about Mubi, right? The curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Of course you do, because Mubi is awesome. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover on the service. Or rediscover, for that matter. Just this week, I noticed that Alejandro González Inarritu's brilliantly audacious Birdman from 2014 was available to watch on the service here in the UK. The first time I saw it, I think I was so absorbed by its dazzling feats of choreography, the action unfolds in pretty much one uninterrupted shot, that I don't think I fully appreciated Michael Keaton's marvellously meta performance as an actor who'd once played a superhero but was now facing a final curtain. A fantastic fable on the fleeting nature of fame, this is exactly the sort of cinema just waiting to be discovered on movie, on which each and every film is hand-selected. Explore the best of cinema, streaming anytime, anywhere. Try Mubi for 30 days free with our exclusive promo offer. Head to mubi.com forward slash script apart for a whole month of great cinema for free. That address again, it's mubi.com forward slash script apart. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Magic Mind. Does the following sound familiar to you at all? You're working on a new screenplay, you know the idea's great, but getting your head down and actually writing the thing, that's proving kind of tricky. Frustrating, right? Well, it doesn't have to be with the help of Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Magic Mind is a delicious daily little green shot full of all sorts of effective cognition-boosting organic ingredients like matcha. I've been taking one a day with my morning coffee and I'm just racing through my deadlines right now without the jitters of the 8 billion cups of coffee that I usually drink chasing the same effect. It contains a compound called L-theanine that naturally reduces your body's stress levels and it has an ingredient called Bacopa Monieri, which I'm almost definitely pronouncing wrong, but boosts what's called your working memory. Try it for yourself. Make Magic Mind part of your daily creative routine by heading to magicmind.com and using the discount code SCRIPT20 
for 20% off a one-time purchase or up to 56% off your first subscription. But be quick, the offer expires 10 days after this episode goes live. That link again, magicmind.com. Okay, back to the conversation. We should also talk about Tina, Davey. Um, Tina has this, this stillness and this politeness to her that stands quite, quite in contrast to Freddie. She goes along on, on Freddie's journey with her as kind of both a friend and also her translator as Freddie kind of navigates this country whose language she can't speak. And yeah, there's something really revealing about the chasm between them in terms of their personalities in the translations that, that we get to see as, you know, through the benefit of subtitles. As an audience, we can understand like both what is said by Freddie and then how Tina puts puts those statements through this filter of politeness and kindness that I think speaks to their personal differences, but also cultural differences too. Can you tell me how you constructed Tina as almost like Freddie's opposite and um and yeah, how you'd describe what motivates Tina to devote so much time to Freddie, because she gives up a lot of time and energy. And it makes me think back to that original title that you had for the film, The People I'll Never Be. I, I can't help but wonder if there, there's there's like a part of Tina that longs to be as bold and as liberated by confidence as Freddie is. I think I think um, I think that's the way I conceive the character at the beginning, actually, uh, I think. Maybe Tina at, in the script was younger. She was 20. Uh, now we don't know, we don't, we don't say actually, but the, but the actress playing the film, uh, playing the part of Tina, she's a writer based in Berlin. She's not an actress and she's actually older than Jimin in real life. So at the end, when you watch the film, I don't know what you think, but it looked like they have similar age. But in, originally she was younger. I shaped her design on people I used to meet in Korea, uh, like volunteers that I would meet in film festival with this kind of naivety of being pretty young actually. And yes, have not traveled before. And so meeting um, a different world with maybe that kind of audacity that Freddie brings will kind of uh, trigger some kind of uh, desire uh, in her. I use the past because Tena is still that, but uh, I have to say the actress um, Guka she challenged me on that. When 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 I, I find her and I was like so convinced that she would be the right actress for it, but she really didn't want to act. Actually, she never wanted to act, similar to Jimin. But at least Jimin was kind of tempted to say, yeah, why not? But 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 Guka was really no, I don't want. And but I was so convinced that I really like. Yeah, like uh, got out all my my manipulation tricks to kind of convince her, and 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 no, but just really convince her, and and then she finally said yes. But one of her reasons that she didn't want is that she find the character of Tina to be too cliche. That's what she told me. And then that specific thing that you mentioned, she said, yeah, it's it's the cliche of the Asian shy girl that suddenly in front of that cool liberated French girl will find all the values. So she saw some kind of judgment from me, and I was like kind of. Uh, I have to say, I was kind of cornered because I say, hmm, that's actually the dynamic that I was thinking, but I didn't translate that in terms of culture, of like maybe having some kind of maybe neo-colonialist uh, um, taste of it, of me trying to say that the French liberated girl is cool and then the Asian young girl should like feel envy to that. So I, I so all that to say that what you say is was there. And then with her like challenge me on that, I was trying to, reshape a bit the character of Tena so that there is a bit more complexity of it. So going back to what you said about what could be the motivation of Tena, I think I, I start to think of Tena as like the perfect friend actually who from that kind of first moment again of the first scene in which there is this kind of connection between them just feels for her. So I, I imagine Tena also knowing a bit about the, the story of Korean adoption and then trying maybe a feeling of responsibility that she's going to be a support to that girl, and, and, and not only because of envying her freedom, but just that she feels that she, she should do something for her. And then what is interesting is that when I was rehearsing, um, when I was doing casting with the film, I, 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 I met that kind of translator, Korean translator living for 18 years in France. So she's kind of French as well. And then she was playing the translator, she was playing Tena. And then I saw her like acting something, and, and, and I asked very Blind question, because for me, it's. It, I will say it's. It's obvious that if I were Tena, I will feel more for Freddie when we are in the scene with the father and stuff. I will try to protect Freddie, but the way that that translator was acting Tena was kind of making me feel that 
but she feels for the favor, actually. So I asked her, like, but do you feel for the favor? And she said, yes, of course. I said, why is that? She said, yeah, poor feeling. And I understood culturally that even though Tena wants to support her friend, when she is in the situation, hearing the current parents say, we did the best for you, us audience, or I will say Western audience, we might judge the parents very badly to say, wow, it's awful to say that. And I believe that's what Freddie feels when she hears that they say they try to justify themselves by saying, we did that for your good. But actually, culturally speaking, that translator, the, the translator that was in the rehearsal said, she justified the action of the parents. And, and I was like, ah, okay. So then I tried to think and put more complexity of layers in Tena's character that I feel that Tena, in that moment, you don't really know who she's ruling for, actually. And I find it much more complex and interesting than what I was imagining. And going back maybe to the script writing process, I find it so fascinating that yeah, I, of course I play with my own cliche, I'm not Korean and that's not my story. And then suddenly being challenged by people who is their story, they have to act it. So suddenly they have to really be exp um, f go through the experience of, of, uh, of playing the character. They were kind of bringing me to, to seeing things that maybe would be more complex and interesting to explore. Yeah, I think you really feel that empathy. Like you empathize with Freddie and you understand some of her resentments. You empathize with the father and his failures and, and the regret that he's overwhelmed by. And you also certainly empathize, I think, even even just through one small scene with Freddie's adoptive parents who um, who we see on the phone and they they seem to feel quite wounded by Freddie going on this trip to to rediscover, to reconnect with her quote unquote real parents. You mentioned earlier, Davey, how food and drink was going to play a big part in in this film and it's interesting thinking back to certain scenes in the film often food and drink is used as a way of revealing small culture clashes like there's there's a moment right at the beginning of the film where where freddie fills up her own glass and is informed that that's not the custom in south korea later when you have freddie reuniting with her father those scenes all seem to be seemingly set against like a backdrop of mealtime in which this, there's a disconnect between Freddie and the food that's kind of mirroring her, like the disconnect between Freddie and her father, Freddie and her Korean heritage. I think in this sense, um, I think that the way I wrote them and the way after I directed them was the idea of, I think Freddie, when, when she's going there to meet her father, she wants to meet her father. That's the only one she's been in touch by the phone through Tena and then that, I mean, she won't, it's not that, but like she expects to see him, even she was not so excited at the beginning. And then she finds herself suddenly in that very big lunch with like seven people around the table. And one is like continuously talking is the grandma who kind of take the control of the scene and occupy all the space. And the question of occupying the space is a very important one in the film, which also translates into territory, the question of territory, of having someone being rejected by a territory and coming back and look like a foreign element to it and how how that uh, graph it's, it's, it's working or not. So that's the first scene for me of her again inviting herself in the table of the boys. It's a way to, to control and to remap the territory of Korea as maybe some kind of neo-colonial gesture, but in the same time, survival gesture of not letting her, like, taking the control. Going back to the, 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 the scene with the father, I think the dynamic here that I tried to think of was they want to connect, but then there is a lot of things that don't help them to connect, which is the grandma taking all the places, all the people, the translation, the, 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 the anger, and the, so the, 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 the heaviness of the feelings. And, and, and I try to work on... Not so much about the food in that particular case. If, if we talk about the relation between the father and and uh, and um, and Freddie, but more about the look actually, the way that they will exchange very quick look together, but in some time not really daring to do it, and always kind of missing the kind of connection in the eyes. So that was written actually, and after we plan editing to really like find the right rhythm. But I think that's what's happening. And if you think of after that first lunch scene. The father have this kind of instinct at the end of the lunch to kind of finally say something and we kind of like all wait for him to say something and invite the, the, his daughter to go somewhere and somehow excluding the grandma that was like 
taking the control and they find themselves in the car, which I think is the bravery of the father with all he spent to kind of try to connect with his daughter. But then again, they're in the car and he's unable to talk to her. He's talking only to Tena, asking her stupid question about like what her parents are doing, which is really not the question that he should ask at that moment. But I think it's out of uncomfort and awkwardness. So I play with that kind of dynamic that if we are Freddy, we hope that suddenly something is happening with the father. And, but there is a lot of frustration to think that it's an impossible connection. And then and step by step, they connect a bit when you talk about the, the story of the island, but still it's frustrating. So it takes a whole film for them to finally connect, which is maybe the moment of the music when he shares on his phone or the moment when she invites him to touch her broken clavicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I, I, I did. Talking about the food... Um, I was having fun, I think, into playing with this kind of feeling of discomfort from free perspective of not understanding what's happening and also playing with different, um, how can I say, everybody's trying to do right in life, I think, but also in the film. When you said that we have empathy for the father, uh, if I try to think of the father and I try to understand what's happening in that first meeting and after after that, it's a fair meeting because I think that Freddy doesn't accept the way he behaves, which is basically, especially when they are together in, their, in the family house, him intruding in her space by texting her all the time, telling her to, to, to go to live here and to come to live here and to marry a current man. But if you take the perspective of the father, is I think, I believe he's doing what he believes is right in that situation of what should I do? And he's a bit lost. And maybe I should play the father as I haven't been and, and play the role of the father. That's the, that's the way I can show her that I regret. But for her, is the, the, the nightmare of him suddenly improvising himself to play that. And, and, and so it's, it's about how I want to say the perspective of each other and what they think is the right thing to do is totally is misinterpreted by the other side because they don't understand the culture and the way of thinking. Going back to the food, in the lunchtime, for example, what I play with is the grandma who is, um, I don't know if you remember, there is this close-up where she opened the chicken. And I think for Freddie or for any Western audience, that's so shocking, like you don't know that old woman and suddenly she's introducing a new plate and she's opening that. But there's a very common thing to do in Korea and Asia that all the people out of affection will put things in your plate, which also the aunt is doing in the in the in the different lunch and at the end and the end of the film. But even like cutting the, the chicken will totally be a grandma taking care of her. So it's a kind of a caring gesture. But of course, it feels for Freddie, even though I don't really develop on that, but it feels like aggressive uh, gesture. So all these kind of little cultural elements were kind of like putting there to again, maybe portray the difficulty to understand each other. Yeah, yeah. well, that that's, you know, you, you touched on a moment there that is so impactful. Um, you spoke about how so much of the film is people trying to say things that enable a connection. I think it's significant that, you know, may, maybe the greatest moment of connection in the film or certainly one of the most emotive is not something that can be said at all. It's, um, it's, a, it's a moment of music. So Freddie's father has recorded on his phone this this really tender piece of music that that almost expresses something that for him is is too hard or too complex to yeah. say aloud. Speech speech can't do it. But that moment of tenderness is um, juxtaposed by by quite an abrupt ending to the meeting. Freddie's father kind of bundles her into this car, and then Freddie has this interaction with her boyfriend. She says. I could wipe you from my life with a snap of my fingers. That line is so powerful and it, it feels like a kind of skeleton key for, for the for the rest of the movie. What was the intent with that line, Davey? Like it, it felt to me like a summation of how the abandonment that she has suffered has kind of bred in Freddie a, a readiness to push people away. But um, maybe I'm off the mark. I'd love to hear what it meant to you, that line. I try to <laughs> I try to think like how to answer to that. Um, yeah, it 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 makes me think of what you were asking at the beginning, which is like, does the behavior of really have to connect and to relate to what she has uh, explained, which is abandonment? And when she's saying that, is it a result as well of the fear of abandonment? I think that several thing I I, I want to say. The first thing is that I feel that Freddie is this type of person that I used to meet in life, which is. I don't think she has so, I mean, how can I say, 
she loves to love. Some people say like she has an incapacity to love. I, I, I don't agree. The first scene of the film is her falling in love, French, friendly speaking with Tena. And so she, she loves to love and she loves to, to be surrounded by people. She loves to, to create affection. In the part two, I think she has a great affection for Lucy and for her current boyfriend and, and for her adoptive mom as well. But it's this kind of person who maybe put the relationship with others in a so absolute level that when they feel disappointed, when they feel that there's a sign that shows that maybe this relationship could end, not, not even like will end, but could end, then it's unbearable for them and they need to immediately put an end themselves to that relationship because they just are obsessed with the, the ending that they cannot, not, now they cannot avoid. That, that's my deep feeling of the, the kind of like uh, pro psychological process of Freddy in how she ends relationship, which is not only the poor Maxim in the film, but it happened to Tena before. It, I guess in the end of part two, it happened as well to Lucy and to KK, because even though we don't see, but for me, the moment when they kiss each other and somehow she invites her boyfriend to kiss Lucy, the way I interpret it is... She knows she's going to live back to friends. She knows that in her process, she will maybe never meet them again and never give them news. And that's like the cruelty of bringing them together to say, okay, now you're together and I'm out. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a secret thing I'm telling in my mind. So she's, she's doing it again. Um, but um, to complete that answer, I have to say that when I was writing the... Let's go back to the writing. When I was writing the film, it... it uh, it got more personal than what I believe at one point. And especially, you know, like, what you gonna, how, how, what ending you're gonna write for such a story? And, and I didn't think of that before. And it goes back to the ending we were talking about, but it's like, at the end, it was a portrait of a woman over eight years, uh, of a film trying to, like, ask questions about what does it take to be happy to a character who really tried to find who she is and, like, trying to find herself and trying to find her place. And so what responsibility do you take into portraying her at the end of the movie and responsibility of letting the audience as well in with the, with the character at the end? And somehow I felt that at one point I had to dare to say something at the end. You just feel responsible of, okay, put, put your balls out and just like express something. And, and this thing might be like, like I, I wrote that like two or three years ago now. So that was the exact moment that maybe I was feeling that and maybe after it is different, but... But there is something I think that to answer, try to answer the question, I think that Freddie, maybe because of what she has experienced of the trauma of, 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 of abandonment and adoption, has maybe discovered some kind of truth of what human relationships are or what make a life a life, which is a succession of encountering as many of a succession of farewell, of like letting people go out of your life. And so she, she, she just had this kind of existentialist like understanding of things. So for her, it's like that people can go in and can go out anytime. And, and I just think of it today actually, but uh, the film that I, um, that changed my life when I was 12 was hit by Michaelman. Yeah. That kind of like, I don't know why I was very young, but it just like blew my mind. So it's maybe the film I watched the most in my life. And I, I, I never thought of it, but maybe there is a, a bit of Neil McCauley, the Robert De Niro character, saying that there's this philosophy is always repeating to everyone that anytime when, when the cops arrive, you need to be able to leave all your family, your wife and your belonging in 30 seconds and get out. And that's exactly what he does at the end of, of the film. And I wonder if in Freddy there is not, again, because of that kind of survival instinct of her, this kind of thing that she knows at any time, that's, that's her and that's... That's, that's cruel and that's difficult, but that's the way she is and that's the way she will be. And how do you think that's reflected in the profession that she kind of falls into as, as an arms dealer? Like, I, I know there's like a real life precedent there that Law really did become an arms dealer. But um, yeah, was there something about the idea of, of peace and destruction and there being this kind of thin line between the two that, that felt fitting to you about that being the job that Freddie finds herself in? No, if it was purely an experience that happened, it would not be enough to put in the film. Also because I knew the danger of putting that and that it results. Sometimes I read some tweets of people to say that, oh, wow, when she turned an arm dealer, I was off. And then that's, I, I hated the film. I was like, okay, I understand. It, it, it just, it, it definitely raised moral issues. But I think that's, that fits the character into having someone, there's a lot of symbol I can put in, but just someone who, when there is a zone of danger, what she will do, and that's basically what she said at the beginning in her monologue about the side reading, she just jump into it and see what's happening. But also her 
spirit of provocation to be exactly in the place where you don't expect her to be and to be very proud of provoking your expectation by, by being there. But of course, there is a metaphor for me of an explosive character and, and, and the weapon and, and everything like that. So with all that things, I, I was excited just to, to play with it and see where we can go with that idea now. I'll ask one final question, Davey. The ending, as you mentioned, you know, it went through various iterations. How did you land on the ending that we have in the finished film? It's, it's so beautiful. It seems to say so much about identity, heritage, and how our DNA doesn't, doesn't have to define us. C- can you tell me what felt right about finishing this tale with, with Freddie at the piano? And yeah, what, what you wanted viewers to come away with in terms of the questions that this movie has been asking up to that moment. I'm not so sure how to answer that, like what, what do I expect the, the audience to feel at the end. Um, I hope that they feel something, <laughs> for sure. What I know is that I didn't want to end by the meeting with the mother, which sometimes people will expect, like will, will, will feel that tonight, like that would be my ending. It's like, I, I feel frustrated with that because for me, if they feel that that would be their ending, it means I felt something because for me, it's, it's if it can't end by that. that. That's the point of the film, it's like the encountering, even though I wanted to be generous enough with the, with the character and the audience that Freddie really wants to meet her mom, so at the end she will, but I don't think that's the end thing. And maybe what ends thing is that like that final error email message that also was based in reality of of my friend that I put at the end. It's a bit cruel. I, I know how much like it's it can be like wow um, a bit violent at the end. That that's the maybe the feeling that people stay with. But for me, it was necessary. It, it's in line with what we talk about. Like her understanding of maybe life is about meeting and farewells. At, at the end, there is, I think, is the last that's the ultimate liberation that she maybe. That's my interpretation. Maybe. Made that she maybe needed to really be free of all that. When, when you find out at the end, she doesn't have any French parents, Korean parents, friends, boyfriend. Like, we don't even know if she's still, like, working in the... I don't think she's still working in the arm-dealing thing. So she's alone again in that kind of non-mentioned country. It's Romania. And, 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 and then there is maybe this last attempt to connect with the mom, and then finally it doesn't, it doesn't work. So it's, like, it's tragic. I want to believe, and I believe that there is a positiveness somehow into it that it's the last thing that she can let go to fully, I don't want to say be herself, that's not exactly the point, but like to fully be ready to walk again and to con- and, and then she had the temptation of escaping again because she's also someone, even though she's very confrontational, but she's also like, it's, it's hard to deal with escapism sometimes, the way she deals with things. And, and she, she nearly like escaped again and then finally she finds this kind of courage to sit. And it's not someone who sits a lot in a way, like metaphorically speaking. And then she does it. And there is this moment of she confronts herself with time. Like there is a pause. And there is another pause in the film. And, and then suddenly she like facing herself and, and there to maybe fully walk freely. That, that's, that's my idea. So, but I don't know in what extent it, it, it translates in, in the film and how people will feel. But at least that was, that was the idea I had in mind. Yeah. Well, it's such a beautiful ending and a beautiful note to end this conversation on. Cool. Davey, congratulations on Return to Seoul. I love this movie. And thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. That was a great discussion for me and also um, a bit different one than, than usual. And that, that's cool for me. You've been listening to Scripts Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash scriptapart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.